All right. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. I'm very excited, humbled, honored, and grateful that we have with us today uh, Tim Ventura, who is the host of APEC, who has done, at this point, I think it's safe to say, decades of research into alternative energy um, uh, devices with respects to propulsion and in a multitude of other fields as well. Uh, he's been on the show a handful of months ago, I believe uh, late last year. But Tim, I must say, before I introduce him, is one of the uh, reasons and one of the people that allowed me to uh, present at the APEC conference a handful of months ago, which I'm very grateful for, because I think that uh, what Tim is trying to do is uh, very community-oriented and very vital with respects to things that may be coming down the road moving forward. So with that said, Tim, thank you so very much for coming on, and how are you doing today, sir? Absolutely. Well, Dave, thank you for having me on. So if if it's okay, I want to start out with a pitch. I want to get everybody to go to altpropulsion.com and register for the APEC conference. Again, that website is altpropulsion.com. And as you mentioned, this is community-oriented, right? This is It's a free community event. And the idea is to bring together innovators like you and like hundreds of scientists and engineers and people building stuff in their garages. I mean, everybody. We're trying to get them all into one place so they can communicate and collaborate and come up with solutions. And so you did present. And actually, my goal is to have you back a heck of a lot more. Um, you said, well, I want to have you do some news updates, right? Because you have a channel, you have a network, you have a lot of stuff that you're following. And so one of my goals is um, we're going to be doing the APEC webinar part of things. We're, we're going to be splitting it up into webinars and open discussion. The webinar part, we're going to do that once a month. And I want to get all of the folks who are on the news side of things in to give updates about their top stories and what's going on in the community. Because I think that's something that we kind of missed last time, you know, when we started the conference. And so I want to get that in there. Um, and there is just so much happening right now. So again, altpropulsion.com. And, uh, you know, it's your info is confidential. Whatever people put in there, you know, in terms of email name, we're not asking for phone number or anything like that. And the idea is we're going to send people invites. Uh, we're going to let them know about open mic night. That's something that we're coming up with that's new. And that's basically just the open discussion part of things. We wanted to split that out so that people didn't have to wait through presentations necessarily, you know, if they weren't, if they didn't want to do those. Um, the other thing, the other reason that we wanted to do that was um, what we found was people would wait through presentations and then they would go to open discussion. They wouldn't even necessarily be interested in that particular presentation. They they wanted to talk about their own stuff. And we're like, okay, let's create a separate area for that, you know, where the where the real magic can happen. So we're going to split those out and those will be every two weeks. So every two weeks we have a webinar, and then two weeks after that, we have open discussion. That is incredible. First, let me just say that uh, I'm not sure if I had asked this before, but you have had people, whether it was with, uh, with it's with APEC, with what you're doing now, or with what you had done um, some time ago with American Anti-Gravity, which I think, by the way, is a, a real goldmine for a lot of people out there. Um, you've interviewed people from, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, Robert Baker at Gravwave, um, from all the way to people like, for example, uh, Dr. Gary Stevenson to uh, Dr. Jack Sarfati to, I mean, uh, truly a plethora of individuals. Um, if I may ask very simply, what it, what is it like, Tim, to be able to ask questions to such um, unique minds, uh, especially amongst a myriad of them? 
Well, I mean, if it's okay, I, let me let me walk you through kind of how that evolved. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, people who people who know American Anti Gravity, I guess, um, I I started that in two thousand two. I had experience in this area. I had an interest in this area that went back a long time before then. Um, but I got involved in lifters, and we were building lifters that would take off and fly around, right? And, you know, the the debate about ion winds notwithstanding, we had stuff that would lift off and fly around the table. And we had a lot of builders. We had a lot of engineers. And so I was one of the only people who really wanted to open that up to a larger group. Everybody else was kind of like, okay, well, we're doing our thing. We're doing our research. Let's see what we can do. And um, uh, Jean, Jean-Louis, not, uh, uh, let me see. Yeah, Jean-Louis Naudin, I believe. Uh, in yeah. France had an enormous site. His site is still there, but there was nobody in America who was doing the same thing. And so I, I said, well, why don't we do this? So I started American Anti-Gravity and just through promotion and hard work and a lot of luck, um, it did. It, 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 you know, literally reached the masses, right? And so for for a period of a couple of years, I mean, I had millions of visitors online. I was doing radio and TV and all that stuff. And, you know, I'm not always the sharpest tool in the shed, but I, I, I did realize, I was like, you know what, Tim, this this media that you're doing, this isn't for you. This, this should be something that you use to promote other people. So I started doing interviews. That's That's how it started. And I just literally just, you know, it was everybody that I would meet in the community, right? Like Gary Stephenson and, uh, you know, Bob Baker. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think there was over 100 interviews. Uh, I also did a couple. I, I went up to John Hutchison's place in Vancouver, B.C. Well, we went up to John's place, I think, four or five times, something like that. Wow. Um, yeah, and took cameras, got close-up photos of the metal samples, the whole nine yards, right? Right. And then I put all of that up on American anti-gravity. So the the reason that ended part of it was we hit the limits of what we were able to do. And those limits aren't there now because of Zoom, because of this online collaboration that we have. And so APAC, in a weird way, um, APAC is kind of like realizing the dream that American anti-gravity could have been or should have been if the technology was there. You know, right. And if I may ask, uh, perhaps a very fundamental question. Just curious, why, uh, why propulsion uh, amongst uh, you know relative to the many other areas one could dive into? Uh, you know, at the time, I mean, again, this came out of the lifter experiments. At the time, that was moving forward. Um, the space industry was a lot more stagnant then. Right. I mean, space has kind of been reinvigorated by Elon Musk, but at the time, it was like. You know, NASA is doing probes, they're doing the robots on Mars, but in terms of anything innovative, um, they had this breakthrough propulsion project, right, NASA BPP, um, and that project spent more time poo-pooing anything innovative than it did actually attempting to replicate it, you know. They would basically just go through idea after idea after idea saying, nope, that won't work. Nope, this won't work. Well, like, for, okay. if I may say, for, sorry to interrupt you, forgive me if I'm incorrect here. And also, uh, my apologies to the audience if this is overly conspiratorial, but uh, were there ever any instances, for example, during that particular program, any projects where they weren't fully tested to their limits and NASA dismissed them before they were able to be fully tested? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of politics that was involved with it, but I think the the thing that to keep in mind that's an absolute truism is NASA is rocket culture, and and it has been since its inception, right? And so you know if if it uses rockets, NASA is all for it, but anything beyond that, they have a lot of internal pushback, you know. And NASA also has, I mean. Again, this this just comes out of their background and stuff like that, right? But like, um, they, I, I would say that the structure of their programs, the structure of their thought, all of that is built around rockets and escape velocity and chemical propellants and how much can you get on board and how much does your payload weigh and all that kind of stuff. For what they're doing, that's really good, right? They're a government organization that's supposed to put stuff in orbit and explore planets. But, um, but in terms of you know true innovation, um, they really struggled. The BPP basically would do like an open call periodically. They say, you know, send us your papers, and then they would go through. Uh, Mark Millis was the fellow who led it, and this was an interest area of his. Personally, I believe that he was far too conservative. He was one of those folks who, who you know, would was, I, I would say that he tended to dismiss a lot of things that he he might have looked more closely at. Right. But but then even beyond that, one of the reasons that he was conservative was he would take things back to NASA and have other people review them and be like, nope, that won't work. Nope, that won't work. And and yeah, so did they did they test some things? They did. They did a few tests. They had negative results, but BPP, they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of resources. Um, if I remember right, it came out of, and I might be mistaken here, but I think that Bill Clinton went to a uh, science convention that was next to a Star Trek convention, something like that, right? Wow. And And somebody said, you know, uh, Star Trek fans are going to come up and ask you, where are the warp drives? And so they (laughs) said, oh, you know, well, we'll start a program for that. We'll have NASA do it. So, you know, it it was it was a good attempt. It was it it did serve some good, but it wasn't what was needed. If I'm not mistaken, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that there was some documentation circulating online where uh, Mr. Paul LaViolette had tried to tell NASA about a particular angle of electrogravitics. And to your to support your point, NASA basically had replied with, and I believe Mr. Laviolette had published the response, the letter, and they basically said, "We're familiar with this proposal or this concept. This concept. Thank you very much. We'll we'll take it from here." And then nothing nothing came of it, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's not to be too critical of NASA, but I I think one of the things that's reinvigorating this right is the UAP story. Because now, I mean, we've got the government investigating what obviously is advanced breakthrough propulsion that defies traditional physics. You know, now back then they were like, well, UFOs aren't real. We don't know if there's anything that could be better than rockets. Well, now we know, you know. Right. Um, so I think in in large terms, one of the things that I've always felt is what you're looking for is leverage, right? I mean, there there's an existing gravitational electromagnetic coupling it's very well known it's in all the textbooks it's too weak to really do anything with right so what you're looking for are other couplings and maybe this comes out of string brain theory um you know maybe there's some kind of a quantum interaction there that we're not aware of 
Um, you know, it could be torsion theory, right? Einstein's metric torsion tensor um, might have offered some leverage, but whatever that is, it's beyond mainstream physics, you know? Right. So. Well, speaking of which, um, we had a, a conversation on the phone the other day where we had a discussion of a very, I really appreciate your insight into this, into brain theory and these different potential dimensions having to do possibly with topology and all of that. Uh, would you be willing to break down for myself and my audience what uh, what your thoughts on that are? Yeah, well, it, it, this this gets really speculative, right? Of course. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, um this this comes out of the interview series that I'm doing now, but I've been doing a lot on consciousness. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot lately. Uh, one of the things, let me back up for a second. Um, one of the things that got me into this was uh, I did a an enormous series, something like 40 interviews last year on UAP. And without a doubt, everyone who has had direct experience with UAP comes back to consciousness, right? Consciousness is a code word for psychic effects of some kind, you know? And and, if I, sorry, before you go on, could we also potentially speculate that consciousness may be a, an alternative word for the transition from material to immaterial, perhaps? Could be, it could okay. be, yeah. I, I, I didn't get super clarity there. I mean, Gary Nolan talked about Skinwalker Ranch, right? And uh, Colin Kelleher, who, who investigated that with NIDS, there are two examples. And in Gary's case, he even said during the interview, he's like, what does this have to do with UFOs? And he didn't have the answer. I don't think anyone really does right now. But um, it, what it seems like is there's some new physics there that hasn't been completely discovered yet. That's that's kind of what came out of it for me. Mm-hmm. And if sorry, if I may say, this new physics seems to not necessarily be outside of our laws of physics, but more so maybe something that uh, potentially we're missing, similar to maybe um what Mr. Eric Weinstein had said to Dr. Pudoff, where basically he had said it seems as though there are people in alternative energy studies that are trying to do to Einstein's general relativity what Einstein did to Newton, find a more fundamental first order basis, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. I think it's about filling in the gaps, right? right? I mean, physics is really good at what it is good at. It's good at working with the, you know, I mean, big, you know, mainstream physics, right? They love their particle accelerators. They keep making them bigger and bigger and bigger. The thing is, you have a pretty good idea what you're going to get out of that, right? So it's by looking at these anomalies that we truly learn about new things. And maybe it can all be explained by existing physics, you know, if so, that's fine. But it's also entirely possible that something radically new and different will come out of it. And I think UAP is the same thing. Uh, You know, you've got, I mean, I believe that these are a product of, of advanced civilizations, you know, that have a lead time on us in terms of technology and development. And we can only speculate at how much more advanced, right? I mean, some people have said, oh, they're time travelers. Could be a few thousand years in the future, you know? I mean, you know, other people have said, oh, these could be civilizations that are millions of years old that are exploring the galaxy. Okay. So they have probably found solutions to things that we consider fundamental, right? Uh, One of the things that I tend to believe is I, I don't see the speed of light as an absolute limit. I believe it is a propagation velocity 
through you know the quantum foam through the background of space and time i think that there are ways to go faster than that or to go around it entirely right which is the classic star trek warp drive if I may say very quickly, it's akin to, in my opinion, uh, shooting the laser beam through a, a glass prism of some type. Of some type, because what's happening is the uh, a light is being re-emitted, reabsorbed, et cetera, et cetera, and so that it would could potentially explain your your Einstein metric tensors and your kinematic viscosity of the vacuum or the ether, if you will. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and going to the speed of light, and again, I am not a physicist, but from from all the physicists that I've talked to, as well as all the alternative folks that I've talked to, um, one of my takeaways has been that when Einstein developed relativity theory, he needed an absolute benchmark, which he set as the speed of light. He said, okay, this is our benchmark, right? And and so the, the problem is when you develop a model where the absolute upper limit and you have an exponential curve that goes to that is the speed of light. Of course, nothing can go faster, but that doesn't necessarily mean reality follows that. So, you know, it, it's entirely possible that it's like the speed of sound, you know, which remember, it, I mean, and this was only like, what, 70 years ago, 70 years ago, you couldn't go faster than the speed of sound. What would happen? Nobody knew, but the pilot would die. Oh my God, it's going to be horrible. And nobody could exceed that until they did. And then it was like, oh, yeah, you can. You can go a couple of times faster. You can go much faster, you know? So are you potentially, and I'm, I'm basing this off of the um, Dr. Pudoff's ultra terrestrials uh, hypothesis paper. So just to add some some groundwork there, are you open to the possibility perhaps that there may have been some type of uh, human civilization that amongst the other options you stated, not in replacement, but amongst them, there may be, for example, a civilization that is, you know, two to three years, hundred, uh, two to 300 years ahead of us, for example, that may be branched off into um some part of the the earth let's say that maybe certain world governments are aware of but you know the average person is not uh so i i have my own opinions subject right. to change right right so of one of the i mean again you know having been in this area for something like 20 years um when i first got into this i i was i was very rigid it was like i've i've learned something this is how it works and what i found is like there have been so many times where I knew something was a certain way and then it turned out to be completely different. You know, that, that now it's kind of like, I, I have more of an idea and that's totally subject to change, but we're in, just, in we're just exploring ideas to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of UAP, one of the things that this is just me personally, but looking at the Tic Tac and looking at what they do and all of that, I I have the feeling that this is some kind of machine intelligence. I I don't necessarily think that there's any occupants inside of it, you know. And and these uh like this Mosul orb that we saw in the aero briefing, I I have the feeling that those may be like some kind of their version of surveillance drones that are just smaller, more numerous, more agile than these larger tic tac type craft, you know. Um, sort of like how we send probes to Mars, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, so let, let me give you kind of a for instance. Um, if you have an, an an alien species, you know, that's that's out there, even, you know, millions of years ago, and they want to explore the galaxy, they've got different ways to do it. Let's say they start building fleets of starships, even if 
even if there is no speed of light, they can get someplace instantly. You've still got the time to explore planets and asteroids and moons and all that kind of stuff. And the there are something like 400 billion stars in the Milky Way alone, right? I, so even if the even if the speed of light didn't apply, there's probably not enough time for them to do traditional exploration. And the odds of them finding us are pretty slim, right? But one of the things that you could do is build what's called a von Neumann probe, which is a probe that's basically, again, machine intelligence. It's AI based. It goes to a planet. It creates a couple of copies of itself and sends those off to other planets. Maybe it's faster than light. Maybe not. It doesn't have to be. Would it be sort so, of fractalizing itself in that regard? Yeah. 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 Um, right. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and so this von Neumann probe, I did the math on that, only 50 replication events, you could explore every single star in the Milky Way, only 50 events. So if wow. each one of these things basically creates two more, you know, and maybe it won't create two more, maybe it'll create a hundred more, you know? So, I mean, the odds are that if UAP are extraterrestrial as they appear to be they're probably some kind of self-replicating probe that would be my thought you know wow no i i, I completely agree because it, it just seems for the sake of for lack of a better word to use i guess for the sake of time efficiency if you will presuming that these alleged you know entities beings machines etc perceive time the same way we do it would certainly make much more sense to take that approach instead of going, you know, manually themselves in person one by one. I mean, it, it, it that would take, I don't think I can calculate. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it's, it's just, it would be so time and labor. And I, I mean, if you were going to try and do this with fleets of, you know, again, fleets of UFOs, you know, I mean, they would have to have some kind of a massive breeding program just to create enough pilots to, <laughs> to attempt to do it. Right. Right. So, in in again, this is just my thought, but I, I I think that what we're dealing with is some form of machine intelligence. But but that being said, um, you know, Dr. Julia Mossbridge had said this to me a while ago. I was talking with her about some of this stuff a year ago, and she said, Tim, when you get into the scales of time and space that you're talking about, they lose their meaning. You know, and she's like, She's like, you, you should really stop using words like time and space in the same context you have been. And at first I was like, I don't understand what she's saying. And then I thought about it and I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, what, you know, when you're talking about potentially millions of years old races, you know, if they're from other worlds or maybe they're from our future. And then if they're from our future, how far in our future, right? Yeah. Right. This is interesting because, and again, I'm just speculating here, this concept of time being less and less relevant as we go into these potentially, quote unquote, higher dimensions, for lack of a better description, I find it interesting that it seems to uh, be very akin um, to that of what certain ancient uh, cultures have described around the world, this idea of, and again, speculative, but this idea of there being a void or some type of environment that is outside of time, for lack of a better definition. Yeah. And, you know, it, we're, we're really, even as like, even in our own society, this is a little bit of a tangent, we're starting to blur some of those ideas of time. Like, let me give you a, for instance, so I, I'm 47 years old, right? I'm a little older than a lot of the folks who are in this now. And 
um, when I got into it, it was, you know, looking up papers in a library, right? And there was a cutoff in between the people who would develop that, right? Like you look back at Tesla stuff and it's, you're looking at drawings. There, there are no videos. There are no films. It's just drawings, you know? Uh, there was a cutoff in between then and now. Whereas with you and I talking in this chat, somebody can look at this a year, five years, 10 years, and it'll look pretty normal, right? It's just two guys talking. And and so we're already starting to kind of blur those distinctions a little bit, you know, in our own society. Right. And if I may say as well, it's interesting to note that we see, for example, the um, the peer-reviewed literature, whether it's written by an academic or just a researcher that stumbled upon something that ended up being scientifically correct and feasible, we find that, for example, in today's age where there's much more of this com in, in immediate communication, there's much more progress being made a lot quicker. Because back then, for example, many decades ago, you'd have to write your paper, get it published, get it peer-reviewed, yeah. and then if someone wanted to make a comment on it, you'd have to then make your comments, submit it, etc. You're probably talking two, three years by the time that's all said and done yeah well and and i think some of that kind of came out of the dot-com era right when you know i mean like elon musk jeff bezos they're not phds they're they're dot-com entrepreneurs right with that elon is. musk it's like okay we have an idea we can develop this we can get it out there you know and that ended up being paypal right that was how he made his money jeff bezos was amazon bill gates dropped out of college right people forget that that you know, during that dot com era, the technology was there, the opportunities were there. It was like, you know, it was a coalition of the willing, right? It's like, you're, we want to do this. We know that we can make money with it. We can change the world. Okay. You know, that's in contrast to the government. And the government leans on the, you know, the master's degree, the PhD system for credentials because they need to have some kind of credentials. And it's government, right? They've got committees on top of committees saying, you know, how can we guarantee that this person has expertise? So they fall back to the university system because the university system awards credentials and expertise. But these are different worlds. So do you think perhaps, uh, again, just to be clear to, to yourself, to myself, to the audience, these these proposals or ideas or hypotheses are or even views are are definitely subject to change. But do you think that perhaps the research uh, system or, if you will, should be decoupled from the university system for the sake of faster uh, research development and, I, and perhaps I, maybe less political you know, intervention? I think that's already happening to some degree, right? Right, right. You know, and it, I mean, again, in terms of APAC, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing there is there are tons of people just doing their own work, right? And some of those are in small groups. Others are working independent, you know, in terms of the conference itself, then our goal is, okay, here's a way to showcase this. Here's a way to showcase what you're doing to the world. And here's a way to collaborate and communicate with other people, you know? And that's really that's really all that the conference is about. And I mean, we try to be really respectful of people's intellectual property. Also, when people send me presentations, one of the things I always tell them is, look, if you have a, you know, a quote unquote secret sauce, don't share that on APAC. Keep that to yourself. Now, maybe that limits things. But, uh, you know, a lot of innovators are, are really terrified about, look, I've been developing this. I've been developing the other thing. I don't want to give it all away. And I'm like you know, maybe you can share enough to help others understand what you're doing and to inspire them. 
and then they can follow up with you and work with you and collaborate with you, you know? So in so, other words, let them, I guess you could say for lack of a better description, open the appropriate doorways, but don't necessarily give up anything that would be that perhaps someone has rightfully worked many, many years on. Yeah. And right. you know, to be honest, I, it, you know, now that I've said that, that I've only met a few people who even have that concern. Most of the innovators out there are willing to just tell you everything that they're working on, everything that they're planning, you know? So, right. Well, speaking of which, not, not to put you on the spot, if it's all right, but just curious here, cause I don't think we had discussed this last time. Um, if, if you could off the top of your head, go through perhaps over the last maybe 10, 15, 20 years, some of the most compelling either concepts or projects you've seen from a propulsion sense that may look the most promising. Oh, you know, I've seen, I know so there's a many. lot. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, some of the takeaways, I guess, one of the things, um, so again, I started out with lifters and I spent years in the garage testing those, right. I mean, variation after variation, different, you know, voltages, currents, uh, equipment, waveforms, you know, you name it, configurations, the whole nine yards. Um, we saw some anomalies with lifters. And, and again, this is stuff where, uh, how how would I express this? Um, anytime you do a scientific experiment, you have noise, right? And science discards the noise, but there's information in that noise too. And with lifters, we saw weird effects. We saw inertial anomalies. They don't behave exactly like they're supposed to. You almost get like this, it's like a gyroscopic effect, but it's a linear effect. They, they tend to, they did what was called rejecting externally applied inertia. So when a lifter is in operation, th these are tethered, right? We, we would use, we would use threads to hold them down. So they, be, it, you know, um, so when it's in flight and it's tethered, if you try and move it, right. Or let's say if a wind comes up, if a gust of wind comes up, it will reject that externally applied inertia. It kind of creates its own inertial field. Um, and that's something that was never studied that well, but there was the one, I think the best known example of that was there was a fellow named Savoir in Belgium, and he took a lifter and put it inside of a closed cavity. So it wouldn't interact with the outside environment. Right. And he used a fan to rotate the cavity. So if you can imagine, he's got, basically, he's got like a balsa wood and plastic wrap sealed container. And he's rotating the container and inside of it is a lifter. So he gets this container going up to about 20 RPMs. It's just going around in circles on camera. And when he turns it on, it stops. And then when he turns it off, it starts rotating again. Well, so that the, you know, people have said, well, it's the bearings. He he checked the bearings, he changed his bearings out, you know, the whole nine yards. It wasn't bearings. It was the lifter itself. Something about the lifter creates its own inertial field and it rejects, like in this case, I, he tested this thing several times. He always had the same result. When the lifter is on, it stops spinning. It creates its own inertial field. And then you would turn it off and it would start to spin back up again. So almost as if it's, uh, again, speculative, but it were to be, for example, voiding the metric when it's on and then when turned off, sort of reabsorbing the local metric again. I don't know. I don't right. Yeah. Right. I, I yeah, I, it was one of those observational things, but 
Uh, but the reason I mention that again is um, it was one of those things that kind of went by the wayside, right? right it's like, right. okay, you know, it, at the time, everybody knew about these things. They're like, okay, we see these things happening, but that wasn't really our primary focus. So you make a note and you move on. And that happens all the time in science. And I mean, who, you know, who knows what I, else I think, is out there in different right. fields that. It, no, it's true. I, I think, for example, Jacques Vallée had said something about a year or two ago at, at the most, I believe, where he said someone ends up writing a paper. It has very compelling concepts and science seems scientifically feasible. You then hear about some potential preliminary experiments and then it kind of just disappears or like just yeah. kind of simmers down, if you will. Like no one really discusses it in the mainstream. It just kind of stops. Now, for me, in terms of the theory space, one of the things that I got most excited about, and this is a long, long chain, but um, I, so I started out, I did a, a big story and lots of research on, I did research on the Nazi bell, on Nick Cook's Nazi bell, as well as the Philadelphia experiment. And I am convinced that the US government at least attempted the Philadelphia experiment. I don't think they were successful. I think what they did was hurt a bunch of sailors and covered it up, right? Um, but believe it or not, the more you dig, the more validation you find for a secret project trying to make a ship either radar invisible, which actually can be done, that's been demonstrated, or maybe completely invisible. I'm not sure if they were going for that or not. Um, so that involved going back to the, the Berlitz book from the 70s, late 60s, I think. Um, that involved working with Albert Einstein and Einstein's unified field theory. Einstein was actually on that project. So uh, Einstein's unified field theory also may have been involved with the Nazi bell and the Nazi research. And the reason is uh, one of the top scientific advisors in Nazi Germany helped Einstein validate the early versions of that theory. Einstein and him would send letters back and forth. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Right. So, yeah. Do you so, think there was you, any feasibility to the bell by chance, particularly the speculation or allegations that there was some type of internal rotation with uh, mer a red mercury or something like this? I am not, I am not sure. It, it did kind of hit a dead end in terms of information. Um, I, you know, I, I do, I should say that folks who are interested in that story, um, and I forgot the name of it. There was a follow-up that was published because people have been asking about the hunt for zero point, right? Where it came from. Um, and, and now I'm going to, I'm going to piss everybody off because I forgot the title of the book, but Nick Cook helped a team of researchers, who basically followed Hans Kammler and they said, okay, what happened to this guy after the war? What can we find about him? Right. Cause if you remember in the hunt for zero point, there's this big cliffhanger at the end. Um, you know, if you want to give me a sec. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. And Hans Kammler, uh, he was a a scientist, I believe. Ah, uh, here it is. I found it. I found it. Now I won't get well. lynched. It's called <laughs> the, the hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. So the the hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. Um, let me see. Published in October 2019 by Dean Reuter, Colm Lowry, and Keith Chester. So that's, yeah, if people look up the hidden Nazi on Amazon, they can find the book. Uh, Nick Cook actually uh, told me to read that. And it was for the same reason. I said, Nick, 
we were doing a follow-up interview. I said, it's been 20 something years since you wrote the hunt for zero point. Did you ever find out what happened to Kamler? Cause at the end of the book, right? It's this big cliffhanger. He, you know, he, he shoots all of his scientists. He puts the Nazi bell presumably on some kind of an aircraft and it disappears and he disappears and all you've got is a bunch of bodies and that's it. I'm like, what happened? Well, these, this trio of people believe that he made a deal some kind of a paperclip type deal and came here to the u.s is there any speculation by chance uh i know this may be a little bit left field for some individuals but any speculation that there was some type of uh sort of um agreement with uh, certain elements of the american government to be hit to continue the scientific exploration in brazil for example and i ask that because there have been some letters that have been circulating around uh, whether legitimate or not is hard to say these days but certain handwritten letters of ex uh, nazi scientists in out in brazil post world war ii claiming they're still researching and and under the protection of uh, at the time the american government yeah i that I, I i couldn't speak to i don't know right you know one of the things that i do wonder about I, I guess this is in kind of a larger context though i was thinking about this the other day this goes off off our propulsion topic a little bit but um the uap story brings this to light we need to restore i, I mean we we really need government reform in terms of basic honesty right this this and and i guess the way i would frame it is this um it's more important that people be able to trust their government than the government protect secrets that's the way i look at it i agree yes and and in a sense it's almost secondary whether or not the government is covering this stuff up the fact that people think it is is the problem Right. I mean, maybe, maybe the government doesn't have any secrets, but the fact that people are convinced that they do, that's a problem because, you know, we, we shouldn't live in a world like that. I, I don't think that we should live in a world where, as you know, it, as global citizens, we're questioning major parts of world history or what science and technologies are available or what's been learned. I mean, you know, I, again, I'm a little old school, but the whole idea of government is, you know, for the people, by the people, in service of the people trying to move society forward. And, you know, a, a lot of the stuff gets written off as conspiracy theories, but then you see bits and pieces of evidence and it's like, okay, I understand there are needs for national security, but at the same time, you know, the, the levels of secrecy and things being done out of sight and deals being made and all of that, that has incredibly eroded public trust in government, you know. Well, it's you know, absolutely very well said, and I absolutely agree. There's been, uh, for example, I recently had uh, Ross Coulthard on lately, and he had stated that his sources were telling him there's a, a dilemma, if you will, ideologically within certain elements of the Pentagon. And maybe you've heard this as well, uh, where you have certain elements that are saying, okay, it's time to bring some of this stuff out. But other elements are saying, well, if we bring even an inkling of it out, then that would mean we'd have to admit to all of the rest. And I, I don't necessarily... I guess you could say for the sake of genuine national security and not using it as say a, forgive me, a bullshit a cover, you know, label. It seems as though there is a, there is a balance that could be mediated there to introduce. Yeah. Of, yeah. It, you know, and to use a comparison, let's, you know, for a moment, we're so used to cover ups and secrecy that I, I think that people forget 
how much this changes things. You know, let's let's put UFOs aside. Let's say let's say it was the the second coming of Christ, which every Christian in the world has been waiting for for two thousand years. If that was captured by some kind of a classified drone, it'd be kept quiet. Okay, so you know it reaches a point where it's like some of these things are larger than government. These affect the entire species of mankind. You know, so if if you capture the second coming of Christ with your drone in Iraq, guess what? That's bigger than you know the the security requirements of where the drone was or what it can see or any of that kind of right. stuff. Right, right, and that and and again, this goes back to the classification system and all of that, which I know you know it had its place, especially during the Cold War. It still has its place. But I think that it is in serious need of reform. And the, the UFO topic is a, a great example of that if the if the Earth, and this is what it appears now, is being visited by or and maybe they've been here for millennia, we just didn't know, you know, our neighbors, right? Or if right. it's time travelers, our distant descendants. That's right. bigger than classifications. I, I don't care what your camera capabilities are on the drone. If you have people that, you know, really know that this is going on, this needs to be brought to the public forefront. So in other words, the event itself in certain cases may be significantly larger and greater in a um, valid in a valid sense than the quote unquote concern for protecting sources and methods. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, these things are, you know, and part of it is I, I, I'm speaking as an American. Right. So this is my government. You know, you're you're in Canada. Right. So it's slightly different from a Canadian perspective. It's why would the U.S. government be clamping down on data that affects every single person on this planet, regardless of nationality, you know, color, creed, race, religion, any of that stuff? Very well put. Absolutely. The the one thing I'd love to get your take on is, um, uh, again, uh, just to play uh, res respectful devil's advocate is in 2021, I believe Dr. Hal Pudoff, uh did a question and answer at the, the uh, Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. And he said one of the concerns internally, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, um, or perhaps he implied was that if you if, for example, China, Russia are, you know, have made some breakthroughs, but there's still some vital fundamental elements scientifically they're missing. One of the concerns is that by open sourcing a sort of global database, if you will, is that that may perhaps maybe the Americans have or the Canadians have a vital element that they may need. And that's one of those concerns. What one of the um, I find that fairly valid. And one, one of the things that I find a bit difficult in that regard is finding a way perhaps around that, so to speak, or a way to, again, this speaks obviously the concept of grander world peace as a whole. But in the meantime, the idea of how can we mediate and facilitate that while not basically the, the issue of scientific data merging with intelligence, right? Yeah. Well, I think you said it perfectly a moment ago. It's separating out the sources and methods right. from the data that was collected, right? And it appears that there are videos. I've heard rumors that there are videos that haven't been released because they may, quote unquote, contain sensitive information, right? And the problem is that from a military perspective, what they'll do is they'll go through all of those videos and say, okay, is there anything in here that could potentially be, you know, and it's like, well, 
you know, I, I think that that's perhaps a little bit too rigid, but, but then again, in a larger context, um, it, it almost seems like it's this cat and mouse game, I guess. And what that's led to is, uh, people don't trust the government. They fundamentally don't trust the government. You know, now political scientists have said Americans have never trusted government. Right. But, um, you know, my, my mother, my mother's 82. She said that well, uh, when she was a kid, she was shocked by the Gary Powers incident, right? We were fly flying spy planes over Russia and, and won a U-2 with Gary Powers and it got shot down, right? And, you know, and the, he, she said that, uh, I believe it was Eisenhower said, oh, no, no, we weren't doing that. You know, and she's like, the president would lie. Why would he lie? You know, and, yeah. and that was that was a big flap back then. Right. 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 You know? So. So now, again, I, I think she feels disheartened because she's like, now nobody, no, you know, she, would the president lie? Yeah, all the time. You know, that's a it, problem. It's interesting because my, my grandparents have actually a very similar mentality and perspective, and I don't necessarily blame them, particularly because I would imagine like my grandparents, your mother, for example, lived through uh, at least some element of uh, not just the Cold War, but perhaps even World War II as well, right? So it kind of becomes like there's so much of that and it's interesting to see their perspective of even today in modern days the um that that distrust there that that uh dissonance if you will which also um it certainly explains why when for example a lot of uh, uh uh, people, whether it's uh, military vets or otherwise, that have had any type of interaction with or for any any world government, uh, seem to be very distrusting. I know there's, you know, in the Hollywood films, they show, you know, the the sort of the the soldier that you know served in Nam or Vietnam and then came back, and now they're living in the woods in the middle of nowhere. I think we've seen that yeah. in, in the films many times over. But I think there's perhaps a little bit of truth to that. Yeah, you know, and this isn't. I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have the solutions to this, but right. I, I, just from, from my perspective, I think that the UAP issue once again raises this issue of declining trust in government. And, you know, it's one of those things where I, I know various people at various times are like, rise up, rise up, rise up. But, you know, my view almost is like, you, you don't even need to, because in a sense, when people lose trust in government, it falls apart. Right. You don't need yeah. to rise up because it's on its way out. Right. So, right. You know, that's that's something to keep in mind. Um, and the UAP story, as it evolves, I think that this is going to be very interesting because, you know, things are bubbling to the surface. Right. That have been, you know, once again, oh, no, that couldn't possibly be, you know, UFOs. No, no, that's not real. You know, and and. It's well to your point. I believe Miss uh, Major Donald uh, Kehoe. Um, I think back in the, oh my gosh, maybe I think it was the fifties or sixties. Interviewed by Mike Wallace, Chris Wallace's father. He had said basically that he goes. He's trying to show that he, he had. And these are his words. He said the the government is treating uh, on the UFO issue at the time they call the UFO is treating the UFO issue with the American people and the world at large, uh, treating them like children. Because he said basically. Yeah saying it's not possible but he said if you look for example at uh, i believe he said in the 1920s he said i'm i'm forgive me if i'm uh, if i remember this incorrectly to the audience but he had said that it was stated in the 20s that it was not possible for missiles to reach a certain uh, you know distance and then all of a sudden he goes you know 2 years later it turned out that there were other countries that developed that so well you know they say i mean again science moves forward one funeral at a time right <laughs> 
<laughs> and you you get these you get these you know unfortunately people get into a mentality they believe what they want to believe they're comfortable accepting certain things um you know especially in the sciences because there's so much rigidity you know um it's you know there's a lot of party line politics there right uh, over the last few decades it's become big money stuff, right? Like, I mean, MIT's fusion projects, there's fusion research going on. Those are big dollar projects, particle accelerators. Those are billion dollar projects. And so in terms of the sciences, there's momentum, there's power structures, there's financial structures. And, you know, you, you can't just upend the apple cart. But the problem is the history of science has been about upending the apple cart. So. Exactly. So this speaks to what you're saying, I imagine, about there being internal reform at most, if not all of those levels, perhaps. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and and again, you know, in the past, I've seen people, you know, they're like, rise up, take action. I don't think that we need to. I think that it will happen on its own. Things like UAP are going to change that, you know. I couldn't agree more. And uh, Tim, I know that we're we're approaching the uh, the time limit here, so I just want to give you an opportunity to uh, once again promote uh, APEC, promote uh, you know just if you could restate what you're looking to do with it with, by bringing back the conference. Uh, I'm very grateful that you'd you'd be willing to you and the the crew would be willing to have me on in the next handful of weeks or months. And um, I look forward to everything that's going to be coming. But please, if you could tell my audience uh, where and how yourself and APEC could be found, I, I would like to point out very quickly that Tim does also also has his own channel where he does a beautiful, in my opinion, set of interviews where he really knows how to ask the right questions, lets the the, the guests talk, lets them let them break down everything, no matter how short or long their responses are. And if you could, please. Oh, yeah. Well, so my channel is just Tim Ventura interviews, if people want to look that up. And thank you for letting me mention that. Um, you know, and that's basically just science and technology and innovation interviews. Um, the, the conference again is altpropulsion.com, uh, you know, alternative propulsion engineering conference or APEC, the APEC conference. Um, and, you know, again, this is not for the, in case the audience is wondering, this is not about me in any way. All I do is moderate APEC. I mean, obviously I built a website and stuff like that, but this is a group effort. And this is community based. This is not the Tim show in any way. This is about I can, I can, to the audience. I can vouch for Tim. He he is by no means does he ever make it about himself, but he does a beautiful job of organizing and, and uh, doing everything and very, very well, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it's it's about I mean, we've had over you know, well over a hundred percenters, including yourself. It's about you guys. That's the whole idea is, is to get that word out there and build collaboration, you know? And I mean, APAC, we've had some brilliant moments there and we're trying to take everything to the next level with it. So that is the goal. So again, altpropulsion.com, even if people aren't able to attend or show up, I would love for them to register. That way we could send them replay info. And that way they'll know when we have new conference sessions and new discussion sessions up. That's the idea.
and I'm also just to, so everyone knows I myself am in, uh, am on that that list as well. And please know that uh, Tim does a bang up fantastic job of ensuring everyone's privacy is maintained and all of that. Uh, it's absolutely very well done. So uh, thank you so much, Tim, for coming on. Uh, it's been a blast. I always enjoy having you on. I always enjoy listening and watching to your interviews on your channel. And of course, uh, I always enjoy spending uh, a lot of my weekends, uh, whether it's listening while I'm traveling or just, you know, having on the, the on my computer while I'm doing some work. Uh, watching and listening to the conferences. I think it's uh, absolutely fantastic. So thank you so very much again, Tim. Well, and thank you as well, David. It's an honor to be on your channel. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone.